Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm incredibly excited to have with me today Dr. Peter Pronovost, who is a professor of anesthesiology and critical care medicine, surgery, and health policy and management. He's the director of the Armstrong Institute for Patient Quality and Safety here at Johns Hopkins, and he's the senior vice president for patient safety and quality, and of course, really needs no introduction as one of the world's leading experts on patient safety and quality. Dr. Pronovost, it's really a pleasure. Thanks for coming. Jed, it's great to be here, and this is a, a great session. I want to frame this in uh, what Martin Luther King calls the fierce urgency of the now. You see, we've been talking about safety now for over 15 years, and the reality is we still don't know how big the problem is. Some estimates say it's 400,000 people dying a year. Some people say it's 40. And scores and thousands others are also harmed. But what we do know is the estimates consistently place it at the third leading cause of death. And though we've made some progress in training, the reality is the progress has been too slow and too narrow. And one of the things that are holding us back, Jed, are the stories we tell. You see, stories are the most powerful force for change in the world because they define how we act. You, you change the story and you change everything. Stories like Martin Luther King nonviolence protest or JFK's I, I Want to Put a Man on the Moon or Ronald Reagan Tear Down That Wall. Absolutely. Those new stories changed everything. We in healthcare have a couple stories that are holding us back. And as we seek to tell new stories, it's opening up endless possibilities. And there's three specific I want to share with you. The first is we still accept that harm is inevitable rather than preventable. We still have operations that might have 30% complication rates or readmission rates, and we just say, well, when you care for sick or old or you do big operations, stuff is. happens. Yep. What was unique in our work to reduce CLABSI and what really drove it wasn't only the checklist. It was clinicians told a new story. You see, they started saying harm is preventable and I'm powerful to do something about it. And that's the kind of change that we need to ignite where people believe they can do things and they belong to peer learning communities. So they tell new stories by seeing, wow, Jim, look how good you're doing it at your shop. Uh, I could think I can do that also. Absolutely. And we felt pretty good about that narrative, Jed, until I met the mother of another little girl who died from health care. And she died from elective orthopedic surgery, from narcotic infusion. Well, we have monitors that can counter breaths, but they're not connected to the infusion pumps. And that little girl's mother said to me, Peter, why is it fair that infections are down but not deaths from this overdose of, of drugs, and they're not down, what are you going to do about it? And I walked away from that interaction, Jed, quite troubled, and started speaking with some of our system engineers and reflected to say, if they're putting up a satellite, and say the satellite can blow up for 12 reasons, but it doesn't blow up for reason one, call it a clabsy, but it still blows up. Do you think they'd pat themselves on the back and say, oh, but that clabsy didn't get us. The satellite blew up, but it wasn't from a clabsy. No, we have to start thinking, how do you design systems to eliminate all harms? 
And the second narrative that is holding us back is that quality is viewed as a project rather than an operating management system that eliminates all harms, where training and governance and leadership and technology all work not in silos but in tandem to eliminate harms. And to learn how to do that, we took to the field of high reliability. Now, what are those? These are organizations that perform with remarkable degree of safety despite working in very hazardous and dynamic conditions. And they do it by having two logics constantly at work. The first logic is standardized work whenever you could. That is, they're constantly look to anticipate how someone's going to be harmed and therefore make a protocol, whether it's how to insert a catheter or how to pre-op a patient so you could defend against those mistakes. But they also recognize that you could only defend against what you can anticipate. And so much of what we deal with in healthcare has been unanticipated. Just things happen. They're, they're anomalies. They're, I'm not ready for it. And so they also build resiliency. They, they, they're resilient to recover from mistakes. And both of those logics, the anticipation and standardization and the resiliency and recovery are equally important. Some data in healthcare says that the resiliency may be even more important. They also, though, Jed, have two really important cultural preconditions to be ultra-safe. The first is a profound respect for everyone in the organization who does the work, especially the people on the front lines. Protocols don't come from regulators or managers. They come from the people who have the wisdom to know what the risks are and how to solve them. The second precondition is this culture and a hunger to learn and constantly improve. I'll share with you a brief story about this. As part of our journey to learn about them, I visited an aircraft carrier. And I know you just got a whole crop of new residents now. Absolutely. Well, I was speaking to the admiral and saying how hard it is in healthcare to be really safe because we have residents and staff who rotate every month through different things and how challenging that is. That's right. And he looked at me and said, Stop whining and start leading. And I said, well, okay. And he said, let me share you with you my world. I'm out in the middle of the ocean on a ship the size of a football field. There are 60-foot waves, and the ship is pitching 30 degrees in these waves. We land a plane every three seconds that has enough bombs on it to kill us all and it goes off flawlessly with very little room for error and it happens because we have standard work we have standard practices and your residents changing every month get over it we rotate our entire crew every six months because they can't be deployed the average age is 18 most don't have a high school degree but we ruthlessly manage that's what you guys need to do in healthcare. and i was stunned but I also learned about this value of respect because standing next to the admiral was a gentleman sweeping the deck floor. Now, that job, like the people who clean our hospital rooms, is really important because if there's a hammer or debris on the deck and a plane hits it, it can crash and they could all be hurt or die. Absolutely. Just like the people who clean our hospital rooms prevent patients from getting C. diff and MRSA and other infections. And I looked at that gentleman sweeping the deck and asked him, what job do you do? What job do you do? And what do you think he responded? 
I'm guessing he didn't say I sweep the floors. No, he sure didn't, Jed. What he did was he stood up tall and proud, looked me in the eye with his shoulders back and said, Sir, I help planes take off and land safely to serve the mission of the United States of America. That's great. I went back to the EVS people who work in the ICU where I do and asked them what job they do. And they said, I sweep the floors. I clean the rooms. And that's the kind of cultural transition that we have to get where everybody sees themselves aligned towards this purpose of eliminating harm. So when you walk down that hall, that person cleaning the floors says, I save lives. I heal people. I prevent infections. The people transporting and even doctors and nurses still aren't fully engaged in this work. When I find problems and, and start working with teams, a common response I get from doctors, from nurses is, but I'm just A, right? And we need to get rid of I'm just A. You are powerful beyond what you recognize, but if you don't tell a story that you see yourself as empowered to improve, we'll never make these changes. And the reality is it's those people who are saying I'm just A are the only one with the wisdom to know how to improve. Right. And so we... We, for too long, have disempowered our frontline staff, and this whole movement towards high reliability is flipping that and saying, no, no, we, we have to respect and honor those frontline people and begin to do that work. Now, those people then need to standardize work whenever they could and anticipate harm. What might be some ways you can do this, Jed? Well, we could apply these principles through daily habits. As we've talked about this before, Jed. Habits define about 98% of what we do. Absolutely. Whether it's for fitness, for studying, for eating habits, but they also define how we manage and lead. So imagine in the operating room a habit of every day you introduce yourself by your first name. Hey, I'm Peter. I'm here as the attending anesthesiologist. You invite people to communicate. You include the EVS person or you walk in to the person who's cleaning that OR room and say, thank you for cleaning us safe. Yeah. Ideally, by their first name, they, they, they know that you care, that you, you, you respect them. You encourage feedback. So when you start the case, you ask, does anyone have any concerns? And we're doing that somewhat now, but not systematically. In the ICUs, we start rounds with, how might this patient be harmed? The answer is almost less important that you're constantly screening and nurses may see different hazards than the patients do than than the uh, attendings do but together we'll get a richer picture at a unit level you might do huddle so you come in in the morning in your icu or for your or suite and you get together with the staff and said okay what do we have in front of us today where do we might have risks and how are we going to defend against that and you get everybody on board at a department you might do this through a monthly quality meeting where you start asking about either where was someone harmed or how might be they be harmed and do we have protocols for these mm-hmm. And it's through that kind of culture and logic that we're going to see the kind of healthcare organizations that start to mirror these other ultra-safe ones. And most importantly, that we could look that mother in the eye and say, yes, we are confident that care is better today than it was a year ago. Absolutely. So, Peter, this all sounds great and I think really inspirational. Are there, you've given some kind of tips you think people can use, huddles uh, in units and in the ORs, 
um, really thinking about including everyone and creating a culture of how to uh, make sure everyone feels they can contribute, everyone from the person cleaning the room to the physicians and nurses taking care of the patients. Uh, are there any other kind of tips or things you, you want people to take away to try when they're in the unit tomorrow or going into the OR tomorrow or when they're in the OR committee making policy for their hospital? Anything you think they should really, uh, that would help them move along this road that you're painting a picture of? Yeah, w- one uh, key point is to value experiential wisdom. You see, Jen, in medicine, we have the, a view of wisdom. We, we call it epistemology, but how do I know things that says, I think fairly narrowly, the more PGY years you have, the more you know. And on one domain of wisdom, that's true, I hope. I have you as a seasoned attending physician knows more than your fellow and your resident. But too often, we undervalue experiential wisdom or tacit wisdom. So that person who's been doing the task on the front lines for years or the wife who's seen her husband for 40 years or the parent who cares deeply for their child, those people are going to have wisdom and see things that you as the attending may never see. And that wisdom is too often discredited in healthcare. And in these high reliability organizations, that wisdom is respected and given heed. So whether it's a nurse who's been at the bedside and says, this patient just doesn't look well. And and that nurse may also have PGY ear training or the formal education, but so often we discredit that. When we looked at our bad events in the hospital, we call them sentinel events, Mm -hmm. in over 90% of them, Jed, somebody knew something was wrong, but either didn't speak up or spoke up and was ignored. And that is a profound price for silence. And we have to create a culture where it's safe to speak up. Absolutely. The other tip that I would encourage you to do, and we're experimenting with this here, is also ask your managers to anticipate risks. We now routinely, whenever we make a change, we have a habit in our organization that says, what risks might you interject from doing this? How am I going to measure those risks? And how am I going to mitigate those risks? And we even have our finance people do that. So when they make budget cuts, and we all are under tight financial pressures, we need to make uh, control our costs. But they might close beds, for example, or cut nurse staffing. And I would ask, well, what risks are being introduced by that? Prior to this effort, the answer was, what do you mean risks? I don't treat patients. I'm a finance person or I'm a hospital administrator. what, What do you mean? I don't do risks. And we said, no, no. Do you not think like cutting a budget or changing operations is going to part? introduce risk, it introduces huge risks. So now we have a habit where whenever there's a significant financial or operational change that a department introduces or the hospital introduces, there's a disciplined approach that says, okay, I get you may need to make this budget change, but then you need to own what risks are you going to introduce those, and you almost always will. How do you measure those risks, and how do you monitor that your risk reduction efforts are really going in the right direction because oftentimes the changes that we make introduce more risks than they defend against. Right, absolutely. And this is getting to that whole idea, tell me if I'm wrong, but that part of this high reliability movement is the anticipation of, like you've said, what might happen and being prepared for it because you can't know all the possible risks. Something might happen on that aircraft carrier that's never happened before or the waves might change Mm -hmm. suddenly. And so you have to be not only 
aware of risk but ready to respond quickly so that what might have been a disaster doesn't end up being a disaster. That's exactly right, Chad. And that resiliency comes about from largely relationships so that if you see something, you're not worried, well, if I speak up to Peter, he's going to bite my head off. So I, right. this doesn't look quite right and I'm worried about it. But you know what? I, this attending isn't too welcoming to suggestions, so I'm just going to stay stay silent. Or you could muster the resources to, re, to be re- resilient. You know, Jed, one other area to think about this high reliability also is in education. You know, I mentioned how these high reliability organizations put in this what we call a management system or an operating management system where they break down the silos between training and governance and leadership and technology all towards zero harm. Well, we recently had an event where we had a blip in some of our infection rates. And we went and audited it to see where we had gaps in practices, and we found fairly significant gaps in, in, in this case for catheter infections, new nurses' understanding of catheter maintenance and residents' understanding of catheter insertion. And I was appalled because we've done some work into, in that area right. and interviewed people and said, how could that possibly be? Well, how it could possibly be is in both of those disciplines, they used to have about three hours in orientation devoted to infection prevention and insertion. But with our EMR taking up all the lifeblood, those trainings got cut to 10 minutes, right? Whoever made that change was optimizing their workload to say, okay, I got to get all this this uh, EPIC training in or EMR training in, but from a patient's safety and high reliability, it's a mistake. It's a wrong decision. And so what we did, which would have never occurred in the past, we got the program directors and the nurse in charge of orientation and said, here are the top 10 reasons patients are harmed in the hospital. And you can do it for ambulatory. It's not rocket science. It's infections. It's DVT. It's medication errors. It's miscommunication. Okay. We need to make sure that when you deploy residents out in the wards or nurses out in the wards, they're competent to defend against those top 10 harms of harms. It, in retrospect, it makes common sense. I don't know of a residency program in the country, though, that has geared their orientation towards zero harm. You know, I mean, it's right. all about, well, I need to go through this or this regulator needs to do that or they need to know how to use the EMR. And it's been so refreshing because, of course, everyone says, well, yeah, that makes sense. We shouldn't be putting people out there if they don't know the basics of harm, you know, the major cause of harm and how to defend against that. And I think those kind of alignments and breaking down silos are what are really going to allow us to get to accelerate our journey towards high reliability. That's great. Peter, have you found that are hospitals and medical schools uh, willing to give to put resources into this? So, for example, uh, you mentioned the, the example of a training where the time was cut because they had to they had to get them ready for the EMR. So, let's say you said, "Look, we need to do both. You have to know the EMR, but you also have to know That's exactly how to right. put it in the line." So, somebody then has to give them more time, right? Somebody has to say, "Okay, we'll let you uh, have another day of orientation, or right. we'll start uh, the OR cases a few hours late one day, so you can have this time to do the training." And are, are places willing to do that? Yeah, and I believe they are, and we're seeing it. But we also need to equip residency directors and program directors and clinicians with the tools and the language to how to advocate and ask for those new uh, resources. In this case, it was uh, pretty simple. That was, okay, well, we had to do it for the EMR training. We had to cut this other thing. 
And, you know, so my comment was, so let me just make sure I understand what you're saying. Are you saying that it's okay to put people on the wards to care for patients who don't know how to defend against harm? Because it sure as heck's not okay with me. Right. But, and, and I think we've framed it. One of the ways if you're doing these pitches is this mnemonic that I learned from a book called The Art of Wu, uh, W-U, about how to have persuasive communication. It's really simple. I use it all the time in my head, and the acronym is PCAN, P-C-A-N, and it stands for a problem. We're harming patients because they don't know the skills of safety. C, causes. It's because we cut our orientation time and there's, they're not trained in this. Answers, we would like to make sure that we have systematic training to ensure they're competent in the EMR in this. And net benefit. If we do this, the hospital will perform better on its pay for quality, our patients will be safer, and we believe we need to do both of these. So that's great, Peter. I, I love the pecan mnemonic, um, and it sounds like you use that quite a bit. Yeah, Jed, I use it not even formally for slides, although I do structure slides with that, but anytime I'm doing a presentation or meeting with a boss and asking for resources, it's a disciplined way of walking through the process, and I find it highly uh, effective. You know, I guess the bottom line, Jed, for this high reliability is – we have a moral responsibility to reduce patient harm. We're wasting too much resources. We're causing too much harm. Patients are too often feeling disrespected. And it is us as clinicians who are going to drive it. Changing payment reform and pay for quality has a big impact on the quantity of care received. It does preciously little for the quality. That That's our job, and we have to step up to that responsibility because, frankly, we're the only ones who can Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So, Peter, since I've got you here uh, and I I value uh, having the opportunity, I also want to ask you about, uh, I remember when I was a fellow and you were my attending and you gave us on rounds this this kind of great mnemonic and talk about uh, something called Aileen. And I'm wondering if you might spare a little time to talk to our listeners about Aileen and, and how that's used. Great, Jed. Yes, it's an incredibly powerful tool, and it fits into this concept of high reliability of standard work. You see, communication errors account for somewhere between 120 to 160,000 deaths a year. And just like there's standard work to put a central line in or to intubate, there's a standard way to communicate to reduce risks. And one of these standard tools is how to recover when a patient is upset or a colleague is upset. So often, Jed, we just shoot from the hip. And I'm curious if the audience, if when you have some patient who's upset and they're yelling, how do you approach uh, it? Having a structured approach will increase your probability of successfully resolving that. And, and why is it important to resolve this? Well, a couple reasons. One is just the human side. It's distressing for patients. It's distressing for, for us. It's really distracting. And so the human piece of none of us like to fight unless you're a psychopath. Right. Two is patients who have a trusting relationship with their clinicians are much more likely to follow their treatment plan. They're much more likely to be compliant and therefore better care. And third, patients who trust their clinicians are much less likely to be sued. You see, whenever we get sued, there's really two things that have to happen. I need a bad outcome, and I lost trust in my clinicians. Sadly, there doesn't really need to be an error, and and the tort systems don't necessarily support that it's really a patient safety event. Bad outcome, loss of trust. And we could 
grow trust by helping patients make sure that they see us as competent and caring. And the caring piece is how we're going to use this Aileen mnemonic. So what does it stand for? Well, it stands for anticipate, listen, explain, excuse me, anticipate, listen, empathize, explain, and most importantly, negotiate the way forward. Let's go through these, and then I'll give you a couple examples that we that can use. That would be great. Absolutely. Anticipate. When you walk into a room where a patient's upset, they will attack you. They'll often question your credibility and your competence, and you need to get yourself grounded. You need to be centered, be mindful, and realize that they are going to attack me, and I can't defend my ego because if I blurt out and defend myself, I lose this ability to communicate. So knowing that, I can prepare myself to say, get centered, Peter. This isn't, I, I'm a good doctor. This isn't about them going after me. This is they're upset about an issue. Right. And being really intentional about that. L stands for listen. When people are upset, being able to speak is like oxygen. And if you cut them off, they feel like you suffocate. And if you ever watch someone who's upset and you interrupt them, they, you can see they take deeper breaths and it's like they're sucking for air and the anxiety goes up yep. and they're literally suffocating. The data shows that on average in an upset patient, they speak for two or three seconds before we interrupt them. So just you're grounded and listen. Keep quiet. Let them get it off their chest. E stands for empathize. Humanize with them. These patients are suffering. They're going through a lot. Make sure they know that you don't see that they're crazy, that that you don't think this is, is odd, that they're whining, that they're have real suffering and real concerns and you can connect with them at a human empathic level. Next E is explain. Well, we're also not crazy either. Here's why we're doing our things and and this is how we see the world. And then N is negotiate the way forward. You see, in anything, Jed, trust is the key to leading change and resolving things. And trust grows when we do things with rather than to others, with rather than to. So bring them in to co-create the solution. Now, let me give you an example of how I applied this. And you may share one that <clears throat> how you applied it because I know you, you used it uh, during your fellowship. There was a patient I was caring for in the ICU and I'll give an ICU and then an OR example. And there was an elderly gentleman who needed his spleen out. A daughter was involved in their care. They went to an outside hospital because they wanted to try to have it done laparoscopically. And the outside surgeon said, no, you can't. Uh, the daughter said, come to Johns Hopkins. Uh, we said we can do it laparoscopically. And the patient suffered complications on the way out. The spleen ruptured. They had to go back for bleeding. They went back for bleeding again. And so they've been here for a while, and they're frustrated. As you can imagine, the daughter might be feeling some guilt about pushing to get it done laparoscopically and these complications. And so the nurse comes and gets me because the patient's daughter is screaming, you're just a bunch of buffoons. Didn't you read his medical record? Don't you know that insulin makes his blood sugar go up? Why are you giving my dad insulin? Now he's a diabetic for life. You're killing him. This is just the, you're a bunch of incompetent doctors. So this screaming is going on in the ICU. The nurse comes and grabs me and says, could you speak to the family? The daughter's really upset. 
I grabbed the fellow and said, hey, we're going to use this Aileen thing. Here's what it stands for. As we're talking about it, tick off the letters in your head. But be, let's go in there. Okay, she's going to unload on us. Be grounded. Don't defend your ego. Just listen. Right. So Mrs. X... Uh, I understand you're upset. Could you help me understand why? Why? What do you mean? Uh, uh, why? Aren't you the attending here? Yes. Are you just a buffoon then? Don't you read his record? Don't you know that my dad's reaction to insulin means it makes his blood sugar go up? It was done at the outside hospital and now you're giving him insulin? This is just ridiculous. You guys are incompetent. Empathize. You know, you've been through so much. Your dad's had a lot of complications. I'm sure you're exhausted. And if I thought someone was doing something that was harming my dad, I'd be really upset too. Boy, this, yeah, I, I get it. You've been through a lot. Your dad's been through a lot. And now here you think we're not aware of his medical conditions. I understand why you're, where you're coming from. E, explain. But let me share with you why we're doing this. Uh, your dad's sugars are quite high. And in patients whose sugars are high, it increases the risk for a surgical site infection and, and other complications, which is the last thing we'd want to do. And his sugars are at the high enough level that if we don't treat it, he's really at increased risk for, for an infection. Now, I don't know what happened at the other hospital. I saw that note on, on the record. It wasn't that we didn't see it. But I've never seen a patient who insulin makes their blood sugar go up. There's, just, there's no biologic reason for it. I think what probably happened was you correlated the two, that his sugar was high, Andy got insulin, and we correlated that it caused it, but but I've never seen it. doesn't mean it can't happen, but there's no biologic mechanism for how it could happen. So we're not trying to harm your dad, we're trying to help him. And just because he gets some short-term insulin by no means commits him to being a diabetic for life. We use insulin all the time for short-term in surgical patients. Negotiate. But, but I know you're worried, really worried about this, so... What if we could agree on a plan where I might normally treat a sugar at 130, but you're worried about it. How about if we agree we won't treat it till it's 150 or 160 if you want? Beyond that, I think it's really risky for your dad and I wouldn't recommend it. But we don't need to be that low if you're really worried about the insulin dose. What do you think about that? Oh, I like that. Okay, I get this. And so above 150, the risks are really high, but we'll have some room that he doesn't need it if he might, uh, if it might not be necessary. Sure. What if we agree to that? She left then saying, well, you guys are the greatest doctors in the world. I love this place, right? And the only thing that happened was we didn't shoot from the hip. We had a structured standard work of resolving a conflict with the patient. We had another situation where I was in the operating room and a patient came in from out of state. They had to get um, flights, and they flew up from Florida, and the, a woman had a pancreatic mass was coming from a, for a Whipple. She had several of her children with her. They all took off of work. They got plane tickets. They got hotel. They boarded their dogs. So huge financial investment and emotional investment for this. The nurses called me and said, the family's really upset. She had a fever on the pre-op evaluation. The surgeon said the case is canceled and he's tied up to another case. Can't talk to the patient. Would you go in and talk to the family? So again, I grabbed the resident and said, hey, we're going to do this Aileen thing. Be right. mindful of it. They're going to unload on us. So I go in and said, you know, 
help me understand what's ups- what's upsetting you. What's upsetting me? Do you know my mother has a cancer growing in here? And we showed up here a month ago. She had a fever. You canceled it. You guys sent her home. She went to a primary care doctor. They didn't really do anything. Now she shows up again. You tell me she has a fever and you're, cancer- you're canceling it. This is a month now that a cancer is growing that we're not treating it. Do you realize how much money we spent taking off of work, getting planes, getting hotels, boarding our dogs? This is ridiculous. What are we going to do now? You're just going to send this back out again? I'm going to show up a month later and I'm going to be in the exact same boat? Right? Again, Literally, just listen. Don't say a word. Let him get it off a chest. Yep. Empathize. Boy, I really, I could feel with you that if my mother had a cancer that wasn't being treated, I'd be really worried. All the disruption, the expense. Boy, you've been through a, a whole lot. You have every right to be upset. Explain. Now, I don't know what happened last time, but the reason why we don't do surgery with patients who have fevers, if we could avoid it, is that both surgery and anesthesia are immunosuppressive. So if we give you things that reduce your immune system, your ability to fight an infection, and you have an infection, it could really lead to overwhelming sepsis. What does that mean? It may mean you're on the breathing machine. It may mean you need vasopressors. It may mean you increase your risk of dying. So if we could reduce that risk and still do surgery, we always seek to do this. But it's not an absolute. So let's negotiate a way forward. Here's what we have before us. Your mom has a cancer. She has a fever. We don't really know why. It doesn't look like she's been evaluated. I'm comfortable calling the surgeon and saying, let's just do the case knowing we take a risk that you might get septic. You may be on a breathing machine. But you're worried about this, and we'll, we'll accept that risk. Alternative would be, you know, we didn't look for the common causes of infections. And, and your mother's older, there's some common causes like a urinary tract infection and pneumonia. What if we do the basic workup for that to see if we could find it? Now, we don't normally do that workup in the recovery room, but you've been here once before. We sent you out. I don't want to send you out to another ambulatory surgeon, you know, or, you know, urgent care center that they may not evaluate it. Well, let's take a little bit of time, see if we can find the cause of infection. If we find something, we can give you antibiotics, schedule for surgery, and come back and say that, that we have this licked. And if we can't find it, we may even get the medicine consult to admit you and find out why you're doing this. I, we we got to work on this together. Right. So we said, okay, we'll send blood cultures. We do a chest x-ray. We did a urine culture. What did we find? Simple little pneumonia that community acquired pneumonia got put in antibiotics. We they were, they were traveling up here. We spoke to the surgeon and said, "Okay, let's just you know we'll give her twenty four or forty hours of antibiotics. Then let's get the surgery back on." I think the risk benefit would allow us to do that. Are you in agreement? And we went from having an irate family who frankly wasn't being given the best care to now having a patient who was saying, okay, what do I need to do to make sure you're my anesthesiologist next time because I really love what you guys did. And so having structured ways to walk through these problems are really key to improving the probability that you'll resolve these conflicts. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I've found using this ever since you, you taught me that it's so key to especially that first step of of going in there and and realizing that this is not personal. These people are not upset with me as a person. It has nothing to do with with the person I am. They're upset because of what's happened to them. They're upset because of of how they feel like they're not getting taken care of or their family member isn't getting taken care of, and they just want someone to listen and someone to let them express their point of view and then to help them figure out a solution. And none of that 
is going to be aided by getting up in arms and defensive. And a lot of it will be aided, like you said, just by listening and empathizing with them. And it, I've seen, ever since you, you went through this with me, I've seen patients who are, just like you said, just incredibly upset, angry, they feel betrayed, and it, they, you can just see the anger kind of just e- just ease out of them as you as you listen and as you validate what they're saying. It, it's not what they're expecting. They're expecting you to be defensive, and when you're not, they really start to feel like they're being listened to and taken care of. Yeah, exactly right. You had two po- points with this. One, your point about just listening and not defending yourself. One of the main concepts in leadership development, and, and, and we're all leaders, is this ability to separate your role from yourself. In other words, I'm Peter as a role as an attending physician, but it doesn't mean Peter as who I am as a person, right? And we often take these upset patients as attacking ourselves and being able to distance that to say, no, they're angry at the role that I'm on because I'm the responsible clinician is a really key skill for you to stay grounded and resolve conflict. The other point that it's key to make what's going on in in healthcare now is this approach is not to be used for a violent patient. In other words, we have an increasing number of patients or clinicians who are attacked in large part because we have such shortage of psychiatric beds that our hospitals are full, full of patients with severe mental illness. And so if a patient is violent or you're worried about it, get security and, and de-escalate it. Right. It likely also doesn't work with a psychotic patient. Right? I mean, so it's, right. but most patients aren't violent or psychotic. They're angry, really angry, but rational and could be, um, you can resolve that conflict, but be mindful of if you feel yourself in a threat and violence, get security and make sure that you diffuse the situation. Absolutely. That's really important. Thanks for saying that. I think that this can be the hardest, the idea of, of not getting defensive for, for the youngest physicians out there, right? So I, I think, and I remember even as a, as a new resident, it's so hard not to get defensive because you're insecure and you should be, you, you know that you're not, you don't know everything yet. And so I think we've got a lot of, we've got a lot of residents and CRNA students and early physicians listening. And I think really it's key at that point in your career to realize that while you may not, you may feel insecure about your your skills. It's still not personal. It's not the, if a family is upset in the ICU or in the OR, the pre-op area, the post-op area. They're not attacking you, and it's the hardest probably for those young physicians to be able to take that step back, but also can be incredibly rewarding if they do. Yeah, Jed, you're spot on, and it is the risk with the physicians in training, our interns and residents, and I think in part because they expect perfection of themselves. And in many sense, that makes medicine great. But they have to realize that at their stage, well, in all of our stages, there's things I don't know. Nobody expects you to have all the answers. Nobody expects you to to be able to resolve every issue. And so being confident to say, I am a good doc, I'm a committed person, and I may not know some things. You know, you remind me, though, Jed, one of the other points that – it would be great to share, is many residents, when I talk about the Aline model, say to me, well, Peter, how do I negotiate the path forward? I'm not the attending. I can't really resolve the conflict with them. What do I say? And you could always negotiate within your bounds of control. So for you as a resident, negotiate might be saying, I don't know the answer, but I will go talk to my attending, and within the hour, we'll be back to resolve this with you. Is that acceptable to you? So that you've negotiated a path forward within your scope of control. So it's not always the ultimate resolution, but it is a resolution.
Absolutely. I think that's really key, too. So we've got a lot of brand-new CA1s both here and across the country who are going to be starting out their first day in the operating room probably early next week. And, uh, you know, I told our CA1s that in terms of expectations, and you hit it right on the head, Peter, they're just you got to know. All our CA1s were saying they're really nervous about not meeting expectations. And I told them, you don't have to worry about that. Their, their expectations couldn't be lower on day one of CA1 year. Everybody knows that you haven't done this before. And the key is going in there knowing that all those things you're going to learn are you can put yourself out there, you can try things, you can propose different things to your attending, and no one is going to think poorly of you. And I think one of the really key things I've always felt is that that attitude of it's okay to make mistakes shouldn't just be there on day one of CA one year. If we can carry that forward as we go through residency, as we become attendings, as we become senior attendings, then we'll learn more because we won't be afraid to make those mistakes. And when we do make them, we can own up to them and we can allow patients to, we can work with patients to try to make things better. Yeah, that that's absolutely true. Jed. And as for the CA ones, uh, I would encourage you also to make sure that you not only are humble enough to say that I could be better, but you create structures to learn from your peers. Maybe we'll close out, Jed, with this story. Please. That is, I think, hopefully what your residency program and your health systems will create. In the late 1940s, uh, London was full of two melodious songbirds, the red robins and the blue boobies. And if any of you saw Mary Poppins and you heard all that chirping in the background, chirp, 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 that's reality was it what, what it was like because these songbirds were thriving because they used to peck through the top of the cardboard milk containers that were left on people's stoops, suck the fat off the top. So there are these very plump, very well-nourished, very melodious birds singing their little heart's content. But then the milk companies changed the containers and they changed the cardboard to an aluminum top. Now, both the red robins and the blue boobies were equally smart, and a few of both birds learned how to peck through the aluminum. But the red robins went extinct in London, and the blue boobies thrived. And the only difference between the two, they were equally smart, was the red robins were solitary birds. They had their little block or stoop. And so when they couldn't learn it, they suffered their shame alone. Mm -hmm. And the knowledge never diffused their, their community. The blue boobies were flocking birds. They flew together strong and proud. And that knowledge and wisdom quickly spread through their community. So they all learned how to do it and share. And that's the kind of what you need to be doing as CA1s, making sure you support each other, that knowledge that you're all learning diffuses and shares through your residency program and beyond so that you fly strong and proud together. Couldn't agree more. So well said, Peter. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Great, Jed. It's a great show, and thanks for having me. And CA1s, best of luck. Best of luck. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Go to the website, ACRAC.com, A-C-C-R-A-C.com, where you can leave comments. Let us know. Have you been involved in any high-reliability work at your hospital? If so, what have you done? Do you have anything to add or any questions for Dr. Pronovost? You can post them on the site so we can all learn from what you have to say. You, of course, can also download all the episodes at ACRAC.com, and they're all available on iTunes as well. If you are a fan of the show and you haven't already, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. Also, 
If you're interested and willing, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can contribute to the show to help us offset the costs of making the show. It is any little bit that can make a big difference. So a dollar, two dollars, whatever you can do, uh, don't think it's too small. It really makes a difference and is greatly appreciated. Thank you so much. To all the CA1s getting ready to start in the next few days, congratulations on finishing intern year, and thank you for all the hard work you've done getting ready for the start of your anesthesia career, and of course for all the hard work that you'll be putting in this month as you embark on the learning in anesthesia that will be the focus of the next few years of your life. And to the CA3s and fellows who are graduating, congratulations It's quite an accomplishment to have gotten where you are now. Good luck with the start of your fellowship or career. To those of you whom I've known personally, it has been truly a pleasure. All right, that is it for today. Thanks for listening. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Peter Pronovost, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.